Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, uh, and I am here in New York City, where I've just returned from Canada. Uh, And joining us from Washington, D.C., we have... Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense and uh, now a partner at West Exec uh, Advisory Firm. Uh, hi, Michelle. Hi, David. And we have, of course, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law, somewhere uh, hopefully stationary. Where are you right now, Rosa? Hi, David. I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. Beautiful Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, also in D.C., we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hi, David. And then I think in London, England, we have Corey (laughs) Shockey. Um, Although while she's in London, she is watching the St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. She is bewailing the slow sinking of her ball club's playoff hopes at the hands of the crummy Atlanta Braves. Yeah, well, that's very sad because it's a, a it would be otherwise be a useful distraction from everything else that's going on in the world, um, which also deserves bewailing. And let me start with that. Um, I suspect when you know people were, you know, thinking yesterday about doing a podcast today, having a conversation, uh, and it was the morning we thought we were going to end up talking about Ukraine and implications of that. And then last <laughs> night, um, apparently yesterday afternoon, the president had a conversation um, with President Erdogan of Turkey. Um, and according to a Newsweek account of that conversation from somebody on the NSC, he got, quote, rolled uh, and um, essentially agreed to pull U.S. forces out of northern Syria uh, and leave it to Turkey to handle resolving those situations, which puts uh, the Kurds at risk, uh, the Russians kind of like it, the the government, uh, the Assad government kind of likes it, the Iranians probably kind of like it, but um, it's really, really bad for the Kurds. And this has produced one of those rare bipartisan outcries in Washington, uh, including from some of the president's former advisors in this area. If those of you are not following, for example, Brett McGurk, who was his advisor on ISIS, I strongly urge that you do because his commentary on this has been both um, uh, uh, informative but also uh, stunningly uh, candid and 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 critical of of what Trump has done. But to put this into some perspective, perhaps I could turn to you, Michelle, and get your reaction. And then I'd like to just go around to the group and sort of get a sense of why you think this is significant uh, and. Uh, uh, where where you think we might go from here. But let me start with you, Michelle. Well, I found, and I'm sure others on this uh, 
show uh, might agree. I found this a really disturbing decision for, you know, for many reasons. Um, number one, it's actually not in U.S. interests. Um, I understand that everybody would like to get our troops out of the Middle East, but the truth is, even though we've had very good success against ISIS and the caliphate that was in Syria, um, the reason we had that success was through the partnership of the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurds and Arabs, who were basically the ground force element um, of our campaign and who have succeeded in driving ISIS um, out of a key territory across Syria and are now very much the lead element in stabilizing that territory and, importantly, in containing um, the remnants of ISIS. Um, there are tens of thousands of ISIS members and their family members in uh, a couple of detention camps in Syria. Um, if you take the Kurds away from that area and the Turks go in, who knows what's going to happen there? And we could basically see the unleashing of all of those former ISIS fighters and um, their dependents um, back into the region. Um, so it's not in our national security interest to be doing this. Secondly, it sends a terrible message to the, um, our partners. You know, the Kurds took tremendous risk um, to work with us. They were out them. We could not have defeated the, the physical caliphate. We could not have uh, reclaimed that territory and substantially contained the threat from ISIS. And now to walk away from them and sort of leave them to their face, fate at the hands of the Turks, it's a betrayal. And I think, you know, when uh, the world watches that, that will hurt us in future situations where we're trying to ask partners on the ground to take risk and do hard things with us. And the last thing that's really scary is it's an evidence of there's no national security process with this president. It's a question of impulse, you know, who he got off the phone with, what he had for breakfast that day. I mean, whatever, he makes these decisions without being informed, without hearing from his advisors and the experts, um, and without really any appreciation for the implications. And this is bad enough, but imagine that approach to decision-making, you know, in a crisis that would really threaten the United States um, in, in an even more serious way. I, it just, that's what keeps me up at night. Well, um, but other than that, it was great. Yeah, right. Other than that, right. he he was, you know, even as we were recording this episode, giving a press conference in which he was uh, explaining that the Kurds and the Turks were natural enemies. And so this was inevitable. He said it was for hundreds of years. But of course, another thing he said in that was um, when he took over, the generals came to him and said that we were out of ammunition. And he thought that was a bad thing. And, and so he allowed the Defense Department to actually buy ammunition. Um, which, which <laughs> suggests we're we're in a very strange place on this. Corey, what's your reaction? So I agree with everything Michelle said. I would add two other um, uh, two other bombs to make the rebel bounce. Uh, the first is 
uh, it's not just uh, organizations that have partnered with us in the anti-ISIS fight in Syria and Iraq, that is the Kurds and the Syrian Democratic Forces that are going to be feel betrayed by this. There are 81 countries that have committed themselves to the anti-Daesh coalition. And we are pulling chocks and moving faster than others will be able to. And so that's not only uh, leaving our most affected allies in the lurch, it's leaving the countries that volunteered to go to Syria and go to Iraq with us. Um, and that is also terrible because it will make it harder for us to recruit coalitions the next time we, we need help to go do something. The next time we want the international legitimacy of wide participation of a group of friends and allies to help us do something, that is going to be harder. And the second thing that is uh, that I would add to Michelle's excellent list is that this doesn't just send a message to uh, countries in the Middle East that the United States considers others' security expendable. Uh, I think it is just more drumbeat that ought to frighten the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Baltic states. I mean, the countries that are most reliant on America's security guarantees ought really to be scared by the frivolousness with which the president trades away other people's security. Um, you know, the White House and, and retired General McMaster and others try and say that America first isn't America alone. But I don't know how you can sustain that argument in the face of decisions like the one the president made. Okay, Rosa, um, what's your take on this? Nobody has brought up the uh, the, the issues that that may also be involved here, whether it's uh, the degree to which Trump's business interests may compromise him with the Turks or his past affiliations with the Russians may compromise him. Perhaps you want to talk about that or something else? Well, I don't want to talk about that yet, although maybe we can get to that. But I, I actually wanted to add one more group to the list of, of uh, Yay, Rosa and people who I think are probably feeling absolutely baffled, betrayed, uh, dismayed, and, and that's the U.S. military. Um, you know, we have had our military personnel working very, very closely with the Kurds for a very long time in that region, uh, We, you know, training, fighting alongside at times. And I'm, this is not to say that just because we have been doing something, we ought to keep doing it if it's not working, right? I mean, I think that, you know, there were, there were whenever, whenever, there will always be times when we say, okay, we've invested resources, blood, treasure, et cetera, in this conflict, and it doesn't make sense anymore. And so we're coming home. And that doesn't mean that the troops get a veto because they have friends there. It doesn't mean that just because we've been there for a certain amount of time, we need to stay forever. But I think what it does mean is that you owe it to your own people to have some kind of coherent plan and to provide some kind of explanation. And I think when Michelle, Michelle put it absolutely correctly, this administration, this president seems to make decisions based on whoever he spoke to last or whatever he had 
for breakfast, this kind of massive policy shift, which is leaving our allies in the lurch, endangering our own security interests in the region, um, that's not how you do it. You know, if you have, if you have, we have been asking our own people to take tremendous risks and endure tremendous hardship in order to work alongside our Kurdish allies and then to say overnight, ho, 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 just kidding, they're on their own. And as President Trump tweeted earlier today, you know, in my great and unmatched wisdom, uh, he does what he does. It, it's it's just devastating. And I'm, I'm sure the rest of you have also talked to people who have worked alongside the Kurds who, who are just shocked and devastated by, by the this this sudden about face. Um, so anyway, more to talk to, but that was the one point that I wanted to, to bring up before we leave that question. Ed, do you want to add to that? Um, well, most of the good points, or probably all of them have been covered. I mean, it, 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 there is a, an old phrase um, that was used about the British, which is it's better to be Britain's enemy than its friend because Britain makes deals with its enemies and it betrays its friend. <laughs> And I think that's a pretty oh, a pretty apt one when you think of the history of the Kurds over the last 30, 40 years. They've um, they've been let down by the West repeatedly again and again, none in quite so capricious a way as Trump um, overnight did. But it is a consistent Kurdish story. They help us, we back them, and then we leave them. They've been, they were with us against Al-Qaeda, they were with us against Saddam Hussein. Um, and they've been with us against ISIS, and it's a sort of repeated pattern in Kurdish history. Um, uh, Trump is in line with that tradition, but of course, in uh, sort of the hyper-Trumpian way that he's done it, um, considerably worse um, than um, previous episodes. Uh, the only other point I'd make is uh, that it's extraordinary to see the clarity of Republican criticism of Trump on this, with which I agree, um, Mitch McConnell included, and that's a very, very rare thing to have McConnell criticize Trump. Um, and I think that's going to, that's going to throw Trump off his game. I mean, the comments you just mentioned about um, Trump saying when he became president, there was no ammunition. <laughs> there were no bullets, apparently, when he, uh, when he swore the oath of office, is the example of an example of the kind of derangement you get when Trump feels threatened and the Republican response to this, not across the board, but pretty, pretty much across the board, m minus a few Rand Paul types, has been very, very strong. Um, and I think that's going to make Trump even more insane um, than we've seen in the last two, three weeks during Ukraine, Ukraine gate. Well, you know, Michelle, one of the things that's striking about this is how many people were blindsided by it. It's quite apparent that the Department of Defense was blindsided by it. Um, uh, it. It seems that the Israelis and other allies were blindsided by it. Uh, and it also seems that the Turks have been teeing this up for a while because there are already reports of uh, Turkish uh, jets bombing a, a border crossing uh, and 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 moving uh, vehicles into northern Syria, so they've clearly been planning this for a while. In fact, there's some supposition that perhaps Trump even knew about that in advance. But um, it, it's it's extraordinarily unusual for a president to blindside everybody like that. 
Um, what do you think the consequences of that are? And then, you know, where does this go? Well, where does this go over the next few days? Do you actually think the Turks will mount a large operation against the Kurds? Yeah, I actually don't think it's that uncommon for this president to blindside people. Um, usually, though, it's done, you know, he, he vents the new idea privately, and then a lot of work is done to try to stop it before it becomes, you know, public and real. This time, he just went straight out and, and announced it as a done deal. Um, and, but I, but I also think he has a pattern of when he's under extreme pressure domestically, he looks for ways to change the subject. He looks for ways to change the news headline and what everybody's talking about. And I don't think we should discount that here. This is a president who's had a very, very bad week or two, and he's looking to change the conversation in any number of ways. And this is one of the classic ways where, you know, he, he can make a decision and, you know, completely change the headline on the news for at least a day or two. Um, I do think that the Turks will go ahead and use this, you know, window, take advantage of it um, before somebody tries to convince Trump that it's a bad idea and get him to reverse himself, which actually I don't think he's going to do. But I do think they will move in. And again, I, I worry both for um, what it will do to, uh, you know, the Kurds and the, and remember there are a number of Arabs as part of uh, Syrian opposition forces as part of the Syrian democratic forces as well, what it will do to them, but also to the civilian populations in those areas, millions and millions of people who are, you know, in and around that area. And also, um, you know, uh, what it will do to the situation with ISIS. I really do worry that this could destabilize things enough um, and take the SDF, the, you know, the Kurds' eye off the ball, if you will, because they're going to have to focus on defending themselves and their communities. Um, and you could have, you know, a real break for some of the ISIS fighters who would love to either reclaim uh, some territory and or for the foreign fighters, use the chaos to slip back into Europe, which will care, you know, create other problems down the line. So um, I think this could have very serious you know, ramifications in the counter-ISIS fight um, and in our, again, in our relations in the region and with our allies, as Corey said, more broadly. The worst yep. thing for allies is when we're unpredictable and we are unreliable. In that instance, they will start hedging um, and and they will be reluctant to to join us to solve hard problems. So. Well, you know, though, Corey, and and this is not said in any way to defend the indefensible, which is what Trump has done here. But the U.S. doesn't have a particularly good record with treating the Kurds properly, ever. Right? I mean, we tend to turn to them when we need them, I and then turn away from them. Don't you think? I disagree with that, actually, uh, because uh, after the 91 Gulf War, uh, the United States initiated Operation Provide Comfort. We sent troops to the northern part of Iraq. We took a third of Saddam Hussein's country. We established a safe zone for Kurds and for others, and we invited in 
not just other governments, but NGOs and anybody willing to provide assistance. We helped build schools. We helped reestablish local government. And we stayed for 20 years and grew a generation of leadership that we are now seeing the benefits of. That is, when people talk about Iraq, the most stable um, and uh, and productive force in Iraq's politics is actually the Kurds. So it shows actually that intervention can succeed. It can change the dynamic of what are viewed as long entrenched, historically difficult to overcome conflicts. We and the Kurds actually did that together before the betrayals started this round. Okay. Um, I, 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 you know, my interaction with Kurds has been, has periodically suggested that they feel vulnerable a lot of the time with Americans and that they haven't had the support, particularly for their own independence, that they have sought for a long time. I believe they're the largest um, uh, uh, group of their kind on the, on the planet that does not actually have their own country. Um, but you know, if any of you others would like to pick that up, we can pick it up. Uh, Rosa, one of the things the president said was that, you know, in his press conference this afternoon, trying to kind of frame this like he he was uh, being thoughtful about it, which I, I, it, it appears he was not, um, he made sort of two points. One, don't hurt any of our people. Um, and by that, I think he means the 50 to 100 special operators who are going to be moved out of this region someplace else. Um, but the other thing that he said was, you know, that he told Erdogan, don't do anything inhumane to the to the Kurds. Now, almost certainly he didn't say anything of the sort. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's any real option that Erdogan's likely to pursue that isn't actually inhumane, does it? Well, I, I think there are two pieces to answering that question, uh, David. One is, is uh, I'm, I'm seeing reports, um, not, not a lot in the mainstream U.S. news yet, but in some of the Middle Eastern Israeli press that Turkey has already uh, attacked some uh, uh, SDF, Syrian Democratic Front positions um, in Syria. Uh, so this has started. This is no longer, it looks like this is no longer, maybe this will happen. It's, it's already happening. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very, it, it, it's, it's shocking. It's, it's shocking and appalling to watch this unfold. Uh, and I don't think, you know, the Turks are not, to begin with, they're not super famous for their uh, uh, strict adherence to um, all the standards of Geneva Conventions in their, in their right. internal conflicts with the, with the Kurds, with the PKK within Turkey. Um, so I don't feel all that optimistic that we're going to see uh, lots of humane action um, unfolding in the next uh, couple of days or, or weeks. The, the, the other thing, though, that's worth noting, um, <laughs> Trump's definition of, of humane is extremely capacious. As, as we know, uh, on the campaign trail, he was proposing, uh, you know, bombing the families of terrorists and their children as the only way to teach them a lesson. He was proposing bringing back waterboarding and worse. And just recently, we learned that his plan to reduce uh, migration uh, across the U.S.'s southwest border was to, you know, dig a moat, fill it with alligators and sharks and shoot people in the legs. So uh, a, a, a 
advice from Donald Trump not to do anything inhumane wouldn't really seem to foreclose a lot of uh, options for the Turks. Um, okay. One, one thing that's striking, Ed, in the midst of all of this that resonates a little bit with uh, what we've seen with Ukraine um, is the, the relative um, silence of career professionals who are, you know, on the job at the moment uh, or who were recently on the job. Brett McGurk is an, is an example, is exception. Uh, there's some Republicans who have been critical of this. Um, but you would, it seems the Pentagon was extremely blindsided by this, and yet, um, you know, there's no visible, you know, pushback to all of this. And I just wonder, you know, at 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 what point in 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 you know in this Trump administration do we be, begin to really wonder, you know, what is dysfunctional in our government that when the president does things like this. There isn't pushback. I mean, I understand why people should, you know, you know, uh, follow, you know, the, the the chain of command to a point. But this is reckless and dangerous, and and uh, uh, and and the silence from some quarters is deafening. You know, yeah, I think the it, problem I mean, it is. is uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Ed. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Ed, and then then we'll go to Michelle. No, Michelle, I can I can respond to what you say. Okay, go ahead, Michelle. No, I, I do think that, you know, from the military perspective, they're used to having a process. And the, and the norm is you speak truth to power, you give your best advice, even if it's pe advice people don't want to hear, your best professional advice in the context of a National Security Council process that is teeing up options and the assessment of those options, including dissent, for a reasoned president to consider and make a good decision. And then once the decision is made, you salute smartly and you carry it out, unless it's illegal or immoral, and then you have an opportunity to, to you know, to refuse. But um, when there's no process, there's no channel for that professional advice or dissent um, one, and the decision's already been made. So it puts, at least from a professional military perspective, and I think some in the civil service would feel the same way, it puts people in a box where they haven't been afforded a chance to weigh in, but a decision's already made, and they either, they're, they're sort of used to being in a situation where at that point you either carry it out or you resign. Um, so he's, he's, he's cut short the process in a way that has a lot of people n not knowing how to try to, to weigh in or push back um, because the normal procedures and channels uh, are, you know, are closed. And watching him treat, you know, respond to these whistleblowers I mean, that's, that can't be encouraging for, for people either in terms of how, how to speak up. You speak up and you risk becoming the target, the per, you know, the direct target of the president's ire and, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, threats coming from people um, on social media and so forth. So it's, it's a pretty high risk um, decision, certainly to oppose him publicly. Yes. Ed, do you want to pick up on that? 
Um, no, I mean, I can't, I can't do better than uh, um, uh, explain the process and people who've worked at the Pentagon at senior level, so I won't attempt to. Um, but I, I would like to see um, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis speak out on this. Um, it is, of course, the Syria, initial Syria withdrawal um, announcement by Trump last December. That was the event that prompted Secretary Mattis um, to announce his resignation. And, and Mattis has been um, extraordinarily um, silent. Um, and his book was really did um, sort of duck the challenge of explaining quite what scale of a threat President Trump poses um, to, to America's alliances, its reputation, and therefore ultimately its power to lead around the world. And uh, so I would like to see more figures of that stature, um, you know, follow Brett McGurk's sort of wonderfully um, trenchant but informative commentary um, and very informed commentary um, on, on, what, on what President Trump is doing. And, and uh, I share the sort of disappointment in, in, implicit in your question, David, that there aren't more, that there aren't more such figures either doing that after having left office or resigning because they've been short-circuited, as Michelle pointed out, out of the normal process of consultation and the interagency process that normally leads up to momentous decisions like this. I'd like, I'd like to see more, more people speak out. Can I, so, can I just jump in on this point for a second, yeah. David? Um, um, there was a great tweet by my friend Scott Shapiro, who's a professor at Yale Law School, to the effect that the Republican Party is taking part in a, a gigantic revamped Milgram experiment. And, and unfortunately, I think that's true. I'm sure our listeners will remember that the famous Milgram experiments uh, done initially at Yale uh, in the late 19, I guess, late 1950s through early 60s, um, you know, were intended to determine whether obedience to authority and conformity would lead ordinary people to deliver what they believe to be painful and even potentially fatal electric shocks to total strangers. And it turned out that astonishingly high numbers of ordinary people were perfectly happy to do that uh, because they, the perceived costs of asking questions or dissenting were, were just too high. And, and I think, unfortunately, you know, Scott's uh, point is well taken. What we're seeing is... Uh, shocks us but it shouldn't shock us because it's it's unfortunately pretty typical of the cravenness of people who value power and getting along and their jobs and their own skins and not being criticized by a mean bully more than anything else you know i'd like to bring it back you know we have about 10 minutes to go here i'd like to bring it back Corey, to the point that sometimes we touch on but that that michelle has made here it, it seems to me, as somebody who's written about this a lot, that I, I can't recall a time when the national security process in the United States has been this dysfunctional. And, and you know, I'm pretty much aware of, of how that process has operated throughout its history. Um, but you, you don't, ha you know, you have a, a right at the moment a very degraded national security advisor position, uh, but even when you had a, a somewhat stronger, more outspoken national security advisor, he was cut out of key meetings. The president takes decisions on his own, which essentially marginalized the entire process. There haven't been principals meetings. There haven't been deputies meetings. The president doesn't like to 
consult with advisors of any sort, but especially not with those that disagree with him. Uh, there is not the coordination that is usually done by the the National Security Council. Um, uh, people are not trusting each other at the moment, but you have the president, you have other members of the GOP specifically citing that they don't trust the uh, intelligence community, they don't, they don't trust the FBI on critical issues of national security, so that alienates or marginalizes them. Um, uh, you have sort of Pompeo operating at a distance from the rest of the State Department and, and, and advancing a political agenda more than, you know, uh, much as Barr is doing, uh, Trumpian political agenda more than a national agenda. And, and the result is we the resources of the U.S. government are uncoordinated. The expertise of the U.S. government is untapped. The president is already pretty rogue as it is. There are all sorts of disincentives to speak up that we've just been sp speaking about. And the world's a really dangerous place. And, 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 you know, to me, you know, this, you know, impeachment and all these other things get a lot of attention and process is pretty boring to the rest of the world. But to me, we've got a void where where we used to have a process, and that's extremely dangerous. You are exactly right, David. Um, I agree with your analysis wholeheartedly. Um, there are two basic reasons that any president should want a robust interagency process. First, to come up with ideas and vet them so that you get the best policy options for these very complicated international problems that have lots of second and third order effects. Um, it's a hive mind to think for the administration to think its way through hard problems and determine a course of action most consistent with the president's objectives and the resources the president's willing to expend on any particular problem. The second reason any president should want a better functioning interagency than Donald Trump has created is because once you have a policy decision, lining up the different elements of the American government to carry it out is it's actually a pretty hard job to keep the right hand, left hand coordination working so that you, I mean, as you guys know, I always snort with derision whenever anybody talks about whole of government activity because I have not in my professional life ever seen an American administration capable of doing that. But even just the basic right-hand, left-hand coordination. Uh, I will point out to you that just yesterday, the U.S. UCOM, European Command, uh, put out on its Twitter feed video of the U.S. and the Syrian Defense Forces taking apart defenses that they had built in northern uh, Syria in order to protect themselves from a Turkish invasion and celebrating this destruction of their defenses as a policy the U.S. and they were doing to build stability in northern Syria. And now we have just left them defenseless against a Turkish, Turkish invasion. So if you had a functioning interagency process, you... I, I see the point preemptively that it would require the president also to participate and be disciplined by this process. But if, you know, you knew it, 
a dramatic change in policy was coming, we wouldn't look stupid all the time because of the the fratricide that this creates. You know, Michelle, you you, you brought this up and and framed it, and you talked, um, I think, appropriately about the fact that our national interests um, are not being looked out after as the, as they are by this process. Um, but you know. And and there's a lot of chaos that that is a result from the the breakdown of the process, but there are some patterns that emerge. One pattern that emerges is that the Russians benefit from this; their position benefits from this Syria decision. We've also just announced we're pulling out of the Open Skies Treaty, which has allowed the United States to, um, uh, you know, conduct flights and and monitor Russian be- behavior. Uh, the, the the Ukraine uh, uh, story that you know dominated attention until this one did um, uh, involved uh, you know sort of carryover from the 2016 campaign in a number of ways, but it also included the president at you know the UN General Assembly meeting pushing President Zelensky of of Ukraine to cut a deal with the Russians, uh, which he subsequently did, ceding certain territory within uh, Ukraine or uh, you know, pulling pulling troops out of certain territory in Ukraine um, and 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 essentially leaving it to to separatists uh, same with the INF treaty um, which benefits the Russians as much pulling out of it as benefits the Russians as much as as us same with attacking NATO and so forth th- th- there is no consistent advancing of US national interests by Donald Trump but there is consistent advancing of Russian national interests. And I, you know, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories here, but it's hard to ignore that, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think you know, Trump's policies and his uh, instincts have been you know, a great gift to Vladimir Putin. He consistently, knowingly or unknowingly, plays into Putin's hands, does Putin's bidding, um, and or creates the chaos domestically that is must delight Putin because his, his what you know a lot of what he's trying to do is delegitimize democracy as an alternative to authoritarian rule and the more dysfunctional uh, we can seem the more divided we are with our allies the more it plays right into his uh, hands so you know, whether Donald Trump is colluding or whether he's fully aware of what he's doing or understands the implications, um, his actions could not be more perfectly aligned with uh, Putin's agenda. Um, and that has got to be, you know, it's a huge worry. Now, you obviously hear different voices coming out of the Pentagon or the State Department at times on this. But here again, the deafening silence of the, of the majority of Republicans on the Hill on this issue is really unforgivable. And our utter failure to hold the administration to account in terms of ensuring that Russian meddling in the next election cannot occur. I mean, the president's still denying that it happened. He's still trying to blame it on somebody else. Um, and so we're going into 2020 without having used the last four years to do everything possible to ensure the sanctity and the accuracy and the legitimacy of our own elections. 
Um, yeah, it's 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 you know it it's daily problem um, that is uh, compounded. We've just got a a couple of minutes left here. I'd, let me go to Ed, and then I'll go to Rosa for the last word on this. But but you know, Ed, do you think this thing is going to have any resonance? at all politically. Michelle raised the possibility that it was a distraction, you know, and people have talked about it being a bit of a wag the dog move to distract from the sort of snowballing call for impeachment. But Americans don't tend to care about what happens in Turkey and to the Kurds that much. Um, It may break a a firewall that may exist within some in the GOP. We'll we'll have to see on that. But, But do you think this has any broader consequences outside the, the the sort of foreign policy and national security community? I, I doubt it. I mean, unfortunately, I think Trump's instincts um, on a, a lot of a lot of the public's view about America's foreign entanglements and the bases um, and some of the alliances is probably just about right. Um, I don't think that necessarily describes the majority of America, but I think it certainly covers a huge chunk. Um, and so the politics is going to be intra-Washington. The politics is going to be the Republican pushback on this, you know, which you have seen before. This isn't the first time you've seen it um, with Saudi Arabia. You've seen it with, with Russia. Um, the Congress has imposed sanctions and Mitch McConnell has imposed sanctions against Trump's wishes. Um, it, it only becomes a seriously political um, thing if this pushes the likes of Mitt Romney, uh, you know, and Rob Portman and Ben Sass, those who are sort of expressing some um, support for the impeachment inquiry, or at least some disapproval of what Trump has asked, um, asked Ukraine and the Chinese to do. Uh, if it then sort of snowballs into, look, these people seriously uh, are seriously now considering joining the uh, impeach Trump brigade. I, I, doubt, I doubt that will happen. But if it did happen, uh, we might date that we might trace that back to, to the events of the last 24 hours. So let me ask you one kind of inside baseball question, Rosa, but you can take it wherever you would like. Um, uh, Corey's after, the baseball person. It, well, that was a, it was an expression, <laughs> a vernacular <laughs> expression uh-uh, uh-uh. there. Um, uh, and, and that is, what about Turkey? Tur- you know, the, Erdogan's an enemy of democracy. Um, uh, Erdogan uh, is, you know, um, buying military equipment from the Russians. Uh, Erdogan has not been entirely helpful in Syria. Um, but we've got several dozen nuclear warheads stored in, in Turkey. Um, Turkey is a NATO ally. What do you do when a NATO ally, um, you know, potentially gets involved in, in the, the slaughter of another ally? I mean, we're, we've, we have, we have created for ourselves an, an untenable situation. Um, and, uh, you know, going back a step, right. On some level, Erdogan, I'm not, I'm not going to defend Erdogan in any way except by saying this, that he's hedging his bets and he's smart to do so, right? Because as we have been saying throughout this podcast, the U.S. is not a reliable ally, it turns out. 
uh, we will abandon people. And we have just we have just reminded him of that. And Turkey is a nation that throughout its history, it's it, you know, it's it's at a geographic crossroads. It's at a political crossroads. It's always been fought over and buffeted by by great powers from all sides and Erdogan and the Turks in general. You know, why are they hedging their bets by, you know, buttering up Putin at the same time? They're buttering up Donald Trump. Well, at the moment, maybe it's the same thing. But 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 historically speaking, uh, it's because if you're Turkey, you think, oh, boy, I can't afford to completely throw in with the Americans because they will abandon me. Um, you know, I, I, I think that this would be a good moment for. Uh, an administration that was somewhat saner than Donald Trump's administration, um, having done this, which obviously I think we, we shouldn't have done it in the first place, but to really clearly articulate, not in a vague way, but to say, you know, we expect compliance with the law of armed conflict. We expect uh, transparency about what is going on. We, you know, to, to, to articulate much more clearly what it is we mean when we say, okay, so we're sort of getting out of the way, um, but we don't want the Turks to do anything bad. Well, what, what do we mean by that? We, you know, that that's something we, we haven't articulated and ought to be articulating more clearly. Um, but if I could also just go back to the, the, the previous conversation briefly, um, and make make two points about what is the impact of this going to be on on politics, on electoral politics, on support for impeachment, on on GOP support for Trump. You know, the I, I think it is certainly right that if you just randomly polled most Americans, they would kind of go, huh, Syria, huh, what, Kurds, what? Um, you know, that they're not necessarily sitting around thinking, oh boy, this is the the deal breaker issue for me. But I don't think it's irrelevant when uh, even GOP leaders begin to denounce the president's decision, because I think even in at this moment when Americans, like others around the globe, are most cynical about experts and elites, it still matters what leaders say. You know that 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 can shift opinion uh, from the public. Um, it's there. You know that these these things are actually related. They're not independent of one another. And, and, you know, on that point, I think it's probably unlikely that this sort of breaks the great GOP firewall around Trump. But and I, I've referenced this before in our previous podcasts, um, you know, there was a, a great blog on the great posting on the 538 blog a week or two ago, making a, a point that we should all keep in mind all the time, which is that systems uh, appear stable until they fall apart. Um, and when they fall apart, they often fall apart very, very quickly. You know, that everyone thought the Soviet Union would last forever until it collapsed. All of a sudden, everybody thought Mubarak and Egypt would be in power forever until he fell in a matter of two weeks after protests in 2011. And I think the support for Trump has a similar quality. You know, when you have somebody who nobody likes on some level in, in the Republican leadership and, you know, someone recently said, that a Republican equipped, if there was a secret ballot, Trump would be out in a millisecond. Um, and when you have that, that situation where you know that none of these folks really like him, but they're scared of him, you know, you have that kind of classic collective action problem of it's it's scary for anyone to be the one who steps out and says, no, no, the emperor has no clothes. This is too much. Um, that situation can persist indefinitely and it might persist indefinitely. Uh, it might persist for another six years of Donald Trump. On the other hand, 
it could collapse almost overnight. And when you see these moments where you do start seeing a little bit of some cracks in that Republican defense of Trump, those are the moments to look for when when cracks can suddenly break through. So I, you know, that's I don't mean to be too much of an optimist. I know that's not my my role here, but but you never know. It could happen. <laughs> it is certainly not your role there. That is Corey's role. Um, uh, um, uh, well, look, it, you know, uh, the, I, I'm very grateful to have this conversation uh, w- with all of you about this as it's breaking. We we don't really know where it's going to go from here. There seems to be, as as Rosa indicated, first signs of, of, of attack underway. By the time you're listening to this, perhaps more of that will occur. Um, uh, one of the problems with this situation is that it does not merely... Uh, portend um, uh, that the Syrians will come in and act against the Kurds or the, I mean, excuse me, the Turks will come in and act against the Kurds or Syrian defense forces, but the Iranians may seek to take advantage of this. There are people speculating that as the Kurds pull away from positions uh, guarding uh, uh, captured ISIS members, that the ISIS members may try to break free and take advantage of the situation. Uh, uh, Saad will try to take advantage of the situation. And while we talk about it for a lot of good reasons in Washington, D.C. terms, political terms, uh, alliance terms, geopolitical terms, the one thing you know is that as has happened for many, many years now in Syria, uh, thousands uh, of people, tens of thousands of people, children, uh, women, innocents, uh, are going to be the victims of this game. And uh, it's not abstract for them. It's it's not remote politics. Uh, it's lives ending, people being maimed, uh, futures being obliterated. Um, and it's, 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 it's very important to remember this is not simply the other side of the world. It's also important to remember that when this kind of chaos ensues in the Middle East, almost invariably it produces more extremism and unrest. Um, that's one of the reasons that this is such a catastrophic decision. And it's a reason why it's it's so good to have been able to have such a substantive discussion. I want to thank you, Michelle. I want to thank you, Rosa. I want to thank you, Corey. I want to thank you, Ed. I want to thank everybody from list, for listening. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for more coverage of this and uh, our other uh, episodes we'll be doing later this week that will update it uh, and, you know, sign up, become a member to help 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 us do more of this. Um, but in the meantime, thanks to everybody and uh, goodbye for now. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.